Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. This episode is part two of our chat with retired Major General Charles Duff Sullivan, who served with the Royal Canadian Air Force. In this episode, we pick up by discussing the General's role as the Director of Operations for the Canadian North American Air Defense Command Region during 9-11, and the planning that went into the 2002 G8 Summit in Kananaskis, Alberta. The General provides us with detailed information about NORAD security for the summit, and a briefing that he shared with the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada about the command authority to respond to incursions of the summit's exclusion zone and how engagement of an airborne threat would be handled. We also discuss the General's first foray into Afghanistan and his subsequent deployment to the country as NATO's Air Component Commander for all air assets in theater for NATO's 42-nation coalition. While in Afghanistan, the general served as a deputy chief of joint operations, where he and his colleagues stood up a dynamic targeting operations center in theater. The general is kind to lend his insight into what he feels are essential enablers for counterinsurgency operations. We conclude our discussion with thoughts about NATO's departure from Afghanistan and his personal reflections on the Afghan people and their future. Throughout our two-part discussion, the General speaks with genuine candor. We thank him for his service, and we hope that you find our discussion informative and insightful. As we did with Part 1, we would like to take this moment to reflect on Remembrance Day and Veterans Day, and we acknowledge all who have served in uniform, and particularly those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice for freedom. We will not forget. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Cubic is a highly diversified company and is a leading provider of live, virtual, constructive, and game-based training solutions for allied forces. Cubic's training solutions include SPEAR, the next generation of multi-domain training, which is helping operators spend more time reviewing why things happened instead of just what happened. We are thankful that Cubic supports our efforts of sharing stories from senior warfighters and leaders from around the world. In doing so, we are preserving history through first-hand accounts, so we are proud to have Cubic as a teammate to go bold. To learn more about Cubic and their capabilities, please visit them at cubic.com. Now, let's cue the music. Hey, Duff, welcome back to Go Bold. So we haven't spoken about a couple of the major events in your military career, and one of them is uh, the 9-11 terrorist attack and then Afghanistan. I would love to hear your, your experiences and your, your firsthand perspective on those. I'd be pleased to share a few uh, points on both of those um, you know, chapters in, uh, in my career. Um, you know what was interesting, uh, Jody, at the time, uh, or the, the time leading up to 9-11, which, you know, I even have to remind myself that the, the 9-11, I, I believe, stands for the 11th of September, uh, 2001, I believe, right? Correct. Is it 2001? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. How, how, should I, how can I forget? Uh, it was yeah. such a, 
uh, an incredibly significant moment in everyone's lives. And I think everyone remembers it. They're like, you know, almost like the uh, Kennedy assassination. Well, I mean, right, <laughs> there's a, right. a lot of our, a lot of our listeners may not even know what I'm talking about here, but I, I still remember when I heard for the first time that President Kennedy had been assassinated and that what, what we all felt. Right. But going back to um, 9-11, so in the, um, the year or two leading up to 9-11, uh, I mean, just to remind, uh, you know, all your listeners and, uh, and, and, uh, and supporters that, um, you know, we had just finished Operation Allied Force over in Kosovo and Serbia. So we were over there in 99 and, uh, and 2000. Right. And then um, I think I got back from flying in Aviano. I was there for almost six months, about five and a half months flying F-18 missions over Kosovo and Bosnia and Croatia at that time. And we were at that point, we were doing close air support and air support for the all the NATO ground troops on the, you know, in, inside of uh, in Kosovo and, and, and Pristina Airport and things like that. Mm-hmm. But we got back from that. And then um, NORAD was very active at that time because we were seeing a lot of uh, a Russian strategic bomber aircraft coming into uh, North American airspace. Mm-hmm. So we had deployed up to Inovic in the winter of 2001 uh, at that time. And we were up there for several weeks. I think we might have even been up there for two months. And uh, we had the full squadron up there. We had uh, C-130s providing uh, air refueling. Uh, we had uh, AWACS aircraft uh, out of Tinker Air Force Base. And we had all of uh, NORAD supporting us, including uh, our teams uh, in, uh, in North Bay, our air weapons controllers in North Bay. While we were doing our air defense or, or air sovereignty missions uh, over the Arctic. And for the first time during those missions, we, we started flying 800 miles north of the Arctic coast. Okay. Uh, and that, that is like a long way north. And uh, those missions were very long, six, seven, eight uh, hours in duration holding cap, waiting for the, uh, the Russian aircraft to come by, and then we would intercept them and then, um, and then escort them outside of uh, North American airspace. And so we were doing that, and NORAD was very active. And our focus and, and uh, threat focus at that time was all external, like what was going to come at us from outside uh, North America. And then 9-11 happened, and we realized that we now had a new threat, that the threat was now going to come from inside our borders. And, right. it, it, and it, it could emanate from uh, our, our own airfields across, you know, the U.S. and Canada. And so all of a sudden, uh, we had to completely rethink how we were going to do our air defense and air sovereignty missions here over our own country, but with a threat coming from within. And so that was, uh, you know, very interesting. And at that time, then, I was the director of operations for the Canadian NORAD region in Winnipeg, and we had to completely transform what the NORAD mission was with respect to responding to that internal threat. And then, and, and of course, I think some may remember that we, uh, we established fighter alert locations, uh, like we, we still had Comox and, and we still uh, deployed to places like uh, Goose Bay and then Inovic and Iqaluit. And, but then we, we also set up alert locations in, uh, in Edmonton, in Winnipeg, in Greenwood and other locations across the country where we were deploying armed fighters forward so that we could respond very quickly to any threat that occurred inside the country rather than coming from outside. And threats that came from outside the country, we normally had several hours of warning Mm -hmm. so that we could get prepared, we could get the aircraft uploaded, we could taxi out, we could get airborne, and we could position ourselves, you know, sometimes hours before the threat would actually arrive. But that was no longer the case because the threat inside our borders would all of a sudden appear 
And then we had to be ready to respond within minutes rather than hours and days. And sometimes we even had days to prepare for the, what I call the, the pre-9-11 mission. Sure. So all of a sudden, we were now getting ready to, uh, to, to go against a threat that was coming like inside our own country. And right after 9-11, people don't maybe remember this, but um, the G8 and G20 in Kananaskis occurred nine months after 9-11. And we actually thought that the whole thing would be canceled, right? You know, they're going to call it off, that the, the risks would be too great, the threat was too high, that there was no way we were going to have all eight heads of state in one location for like a three or four day period. Right. And then I, I must say, I must, uh, you know, give credit to uh, our prime minister at the time, uh, Jean Chrétien. And he and his staff said, no, there's no better place to have the G8 and G20 than in a remote isolate. Well, not really remote, but an isolated location like the G8 or the G20. Mm -hmm. So it went ahead. And so now we had to prepare ourselves for how we were going to uh, provide a, an air exclusion zone and protect that summit while it took place. And of course, there was the G8 followed by the G20. And it was going to be for about a, a week long period altogether from beginning to end. And so we all put our heads together. Uh, I, I was the uh, director of ops, so I led the, the planning exercise. And we practiced for about four months straight, where every week we would do a new scenario about how we were going to defend the Kananaskis vital point during that period of time. Wow. And uh, what we realized is that if you look at the spectrum of threats that could come at us, I mean, there was the typical, you know, the, uh, the wide body or, or narrow body uh, commercial airplane. Then there was the business jet. Then there was the light aircraft. And then you had a whole spectrum of other uh, airborne targets that could make their way, like whether it be through the mountain passes and then pop up and then possibly, you know, execute an attack on, on that location. Mm -hmm. So without going into too much detail there, we were ready for 12 different scenarios that went from a, a wide body airliner flying across the country that all of a sudden turns towards uh, Kananaskis to, um, you know, a hang glider coming in you know, with maybe some type of uh, biological or, or, or some type of attack uh, sure. associated with that. Sure. And what we ended up with on this, Jody, was a, um, a concept of ops where uh, the, the bubble itself included uh, armed CF-18s, four of them, and sometimes we would put more there depending on the intelligence. Mm -hmm. But for, for the entire four and a half days, five days, we had four F-18s over top of Kananaskis 24-7 without a break. Wow. So those were the fighters. And then closer in, we had armed Griffin helicopters with uh, RCMP uh, snipers and sharpshooters on board. And then on the ground, completely encircling the, uh, the vital point, the, the, the Kananaska site, were what we call ADATs, the um, mm -hmm. Air Defense Anti-Tank Missile Systems. Right. And so we had three layers that an attacker would have to get through. And so we had to coordinate all that, a highly precise coordination uh, to synchronize the uh, the engagement zones and, and everything that went on there. And so we did it and we put it in place. We exercised it for, for four months and then we were we were ready. Um, but, you know, one thing I'll share with you uh, that I, I haven't had a chance to share with too many people, about a week or so, maybe a week and a half before the event uh, occurred, I was summoned to Ottawa and uh, by a, a very good friend of mine, uh, General Ray Hano, who, who was the chief of defense staff at the time. Right. And he said, Duff, he said, you have to come to Ottawa because you and I are going to brief the deputy prime minister, John Manley. And I said, OK. So I got to Ottawa. And of course, you know, uh, Jean Chrétien was going to be at Kananaskis, um, you know, hosting and, and, and running the, uh, the G8 summit. 
So it came to John Manley as a deputy prime minister, and he became the national command authority for the government of Canada, who would authorize the engagement of civilian aircraft if that scenario occurred. And all the way through from the wide bodies, all the way down to uh, you know helicopters and business jets, whatever would come our way, we would respond with all our concept of ops. And then we would always have to go to General Hanoi and keep him up to speed about what we were doing. And then there was that point or that time on the timeline when we had to make a decision that well, the, the inbound threat had to be engaged. And so I briefed um, uh, John Manley on three different scenarios. And uh, I, I can't remember the first two scenarios. I think one was a, uh, an aircraft um, pulling a, a banner that mm-hmm. made its way in, like, you know, save the whales or something like that. And then it would make its way into the, the site and then do a kamikaze attack on the, uh, on the uh, Kananaskis Hotel. The next one was, I think, a business jet. But then the last one was probably the toughest for us. And that was a wide body aircraft flying from Vancouver to Toronto. And when it was directly south of Kananaskis by about 80 miles, it would then do a 90 degree left turn and point directly down at the hotel. And then we would only have a matter of minutes to respond. We would bring the F-18s close aboard. And so I'm now talking to Mr. Manley through the scenario. And of course, I mean, you know, he's sitting on the edge of his seat because uh, this is the first time he's heard all this. And there were a few other people in the briefing and uh, the briefing room, and I was stepping through this. And then I finally got to that point and I said, well, you know, uh, Deputy Prime Minister Manley, I will be keeping General Hano up to speed about where we are on the timeline. But when that target, when that threat arrives at this point, I will be asking General Hano to ask you for engagement authority. And I said, and then we will stand by for your approval to engage that target. And then, of course, we, we paused. And then John, uh, John Manley said, well, you know, that aircraft coming out of Vancouver, going to Toronto, it's probably full of, you know, 340 Canadian citizens. Right. I said, yes, sir, uh, that may be the case. Right. And he said, these are going to be Canadians, men, women, and children. I said, yes, sir. I said, that may be the case. Wow. And he said, you expect me to authorize you to engage this aircraft and shoot it down with all those Canadians on board? And I said, uh, you know, Mr. Deputy Prime Minister, I said, we've all thought about this uh, very, very carefully for, for many months. And this will be a mission that we never, ever uh, dreamed of, that we didn't sign up for, right. that none of us ever expected. But I said, this is what the mission is at hand. And I said, this is what we've been training to do in a in very difficult situation. And he said, well, he said, I understand that. But he said, so what happens if I don't respond? Or if for some reason you can't get a hold of me and this scenario was taking place. Right. And I just, I looked at the deputy prime minister and I looked at general Hanoi and then general Hanoi looked at me and then he looked at John Manley and he said, um, the deputy prime minister Manley, he said, I will make sure the right thing is done. And so the room is quiet. And then uh, John Manley said, so, okay. He said, in that case, he said, I will, authorize the engagement of that aircraft and he said but you have to tell me what's going to happen and i said well i said uh, deputy prime minister i said you already know that we we will have done everything possible humanly possible to stop you know this attack and he goes yes you've briefed me on that and i said you know all the steps that we're going to go through to stop this aircraft from going any further and he goes yes you've briefed me on that 
And I said, so we will have one F-18 flying right beside the cockpit of that uh, airliner, looking inside the cockpit to see who's flying it. We will have another F-18 directly behind the airliner in a shadow position. And I said, we will, before we engage it, we're going to fly by the windscreen, like right across the windshield of that airplane and drop a whole bunch of flares and try and get it to turn. And I said, if that aircraft continues in, that's when we will ask for engagement authority. When you give it, I will pass it to the pilot and the pilot will, will salvo all its air-to-air -air missiles all at once. And we will try and achieve an instantaneous catastrophic destruction of that aircraft so that it can't go any further. And I said, that aircraft will come off and then the second aircraft will, fighter aircraft will come in and do the exact same thing. I said, because um, we, we need to stop that aircraft from flying any further forward because otherwise it'll, it'll hit the, uh, the vital point. And then there, there will be hundreds, if not thousands of people on the ground who will be killed. And I said, so that's where, that's what, where, where we are on that. And so he said, okay. And, and then uh, he asked me a question about how we, how we felt about doing the mission. And I told him, I said, well, I said, I've had a few calls from concerned participants, like on our team, mm -hmm. uh, a couple of fighter pilots. And they said, Duff, they said, are, are you actually going to ask us to engage that airliner? And I said, yes. I said, as an absolutely last resort, when there's nothing else we can do, we will have to stop that aircraft from going into the, in, uh, hitting the hotel. And I said, the lives on board are going to be lost anyway. And I said, we want to prevent a greater loss by stopping the aircraft before it impacts the, uh, the vital point. And, uh, and, and, and then I would say to the, the team members, I said, um, if, if you cannot, uh, if your conscience does not allow you to participate in this mission, I understand. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. said, uh, uh, and everyone else will understand. And uh, Jody, not one person stepped away or stepped down. Everyone understood what our mission was. And we knew that even though we didn't sign up for this when we first joined the military, and this is the, the worst possible mission we could ever uh, think of in, in our military or in, in our lives, we knew that we were the ones that were there, that we were called upon to do this unthinkable mission. But we had to, in our own minds, rationalize that the mission needed to be done, that we needed to minimize the loss of life by, by stopping this aircraft. And uh, that was the point in the briefing when everybody kind of, you know, uh, came upon everybody, everybody in the room, they said, yeah. They said, um, just like uh, on 9-11 itself, when we scrambled, when NORAD scrambled aircraft to try and, you know, intercept and, and shoot down that last aircraft over Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were, they were going to intercept and shoot down the aircraft over Pennsylvania because they'd already seen what had happened on the towers in, in New York, on the Pentagon. And they knew there were other aircraft inbound to take out the, uh, the White House, to take out the Pentagon, to take out the Capitol building. And, and who knows how many other uh, targets were on the list that day. And those fighter pilots knew that they were going to have to shoot down an aircraft, a commercial aircraft with civilians on board. And so we realized that back during 9-11 as well. And, and so um, I, I'm happy to say uh, very pleased to say that uh, the mission went off as planned. We had three incursions during uh, the, the G8 summit itself that we had to respond to. And of course, uh, we are all very pleased, very thankful that uh, we didn't have to take any action to uh, interdict or engage any of those uh, contacts that we were able to, to, uh, to push them outside of the exclusion zone. 
But, um, you know, I, I can't tell you uh, how many sleepless nights I had, Jody, in the time leading up to that. And then for many months afterwards, I, I don't know whether it was a mild case of PTSD, perhaps it was, but um, it's just one of these things where late at night, even now, I'll, I'll be thinking about, you know, the what ifs, you know, what would have happened. And the one thing I remember talking to the whole team about, you know, in the time leading up to Kananaskis, I said, so none of us signed up for this. It is the, the most unimaginable mission we could ever think of. And I said, if by chance we are required to take action, I said, everyone's life will change at that moment. And I mean, not just my life and your life, but everyone here in Canada, in the government, uh, you know, every, every, everyone's life will change at that time. And we will have to deal with that. And then we were thinking about what is going to happen in the aftermath. But that's all hypothetical now, because uh, we know that we didn't have to take that um, unthinkable action, which we would have done if, if we were called upon. And, um, and uh, I know that it's a chapter in, uh, in, in the, the history of Canada that maybe a lot of people don't know about. And it is uh, something that we have now in our playbook. Uh, and, uh, and, and one last point I'll say on that about... Um, about six to eight months later, I got a call from the U.S. and they wanted our team to go down to the Pentagon and brief them on how we constructed and devised and developed and implemented our uh, air defense plan for the GH summit in Kananaskis because they wanted to replicate it down in the States. And they ended up doing that uh, down wow. in the States. They used our con ops that we did for Kananaskis down in the States for, you know, all kinds of events, whether they be, uh, you know, other other summits or, you know, the, the Olympics or the, 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 uh, the, the Super Bowl or, or anything else that was going on in the States, they use a variation of what we devised up here in Canada to keep the G8 summit Kananaskis site well protected during that four or five, uh, six day period while, while the summit took place. Well, uh, it's, it's an amazing firsthand account, Duff. Uh, and I thank you for sharing that, you know, how sobering. Uh, and yeah. and this is this is going back now. Twenty, you know, nine eleven happened twenty one years ago, yeah. and uh, it doesn't seem like it's been that long. But that was one of those moments in world history where everything changed. Yeah, you know, I remember. You know, I, I love aircraft. I remember any time I'd go in a plane, I'd ask the flight attendant, "Can I see the cockpit?" You know, and we've now had a whole generation of children that have not had that opportunity, which yeah. uh, is sad. Well, that's exactly true, Jody. And, uh, and you know, um, in the year or two after 9-11, and, you know, after Kananaskis and that, there were, um, there was uh, extraordinary efforts being taken. I mean, we, we experienced a lot of it when we would simply go through security at an airport, taking off our shoes, and right. getting, uh, getting scanned and all that stuff. Yeah. But um, the intelligence organizations that all came together and, uh, you know, as the director of ops for NORAD, you know, when I was sitting in, in the ops center in Winnipeg and we would get a, a, a track of interest, a TOI coming into North America and the intelligence uh, was indicating that there was a threat on board. And then we would take uh, the, the same steps, uh, maybe not quite the same as Kananaskis, but something very similar. And we would do this almost on a weekly basis where we would scramble fighters either down in the States or here in Canada or, or maybe perhaps somewhere else. And it was because intelligence was indicating that there could be a threat on board that aircraft. And so, um, you know, looking at how all that intelligence came together 
and what they were able to, to use as intelligence to help us in our response to a possible threat was, uh, was very impressive. And, and we used to have what we used to call a Noble Eagle, it was the name of the mission, a Noble Eagle uh, call. And uh, if I initiated the call, I would do it through NORAD headquarters down in uh, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And they would stand up this call, they would activate the, the red switch line, and then uh, they would do a roll call. And there would be about 20 or 25 operation centers all over North America that would check in, uh, including some here in Canada. But, you know, there would be the White House, the CIA, the FBI, you know, all these uh, uh, NSA, all these intelligence agents would be on the call. And then they would then say, uh, they would uh, call my name. They'd say, Colonel Sullivan, conferees are standing by for your brief. And then I would brief everybody on the call about what the track of interest was and what we were doing to, you know, to intercept and to track it. And at that time, any operation center or intelligence organization could come on that call and, and say directly to me what they knew about what was taking place and what additional intelligence that they might have that would help us anticipate what was about to take place. So um, it was just phenomenal to see how everybody came together. And you know, perhaps that was always the case and that had always, uh, always been in place, but to see everything now for real, you know, week by week taking place was just, I, I must say that I, I hope um, you know, our, our followers and listeners are not offended by this, but I found it inspiring that how everyone came together to keep Canadians and Americans safe through our NORAD uh, capability. And so uh, it, it was very inspiring to see all that. And uh, it, it was, uh, yeah, it was uh, very, very encouraging and comforting to know that all that was in place. Now, of course, you know, things um, evolved and transpired. And, you know, to be honest, I'm not quite sure what that NORAD mission looks like today. Mm-hmm. But I think they probably have something similar to what we had in the, the two or three years following 9-11, where we were always on the edge of our seats waiting for, you know, something else to happen or a, a follow on attack. And, 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 oh, by the way, we did, we're required to scramble fighters and put them over top of uh, vital points, as we used to call them, uh, whenever we had the intelligence that indicated that something might happen. And then we would always err on the, on the side of caution and, and put assets in place. And then if nothing happened after a while, then we would stand everybody down. But we, we did that more than twice, uh, I will say, uh, in that year following uh, uh, 9-11. Wow. Wow. Um, a point of interest that I have is with regards to the Canonassis plan or, or the way that it was executed, it was Canadian-led, as, as you have described. Um, yep. But obviously, there's the overarching NORAD construct. So was NORAD involved or was it a, a Canadian, solely Canadian-led um, effort? Oh, no. Uh, NORAD was very much involved, like from, uh, right. from Colorado. Oh, absolutely. We used the entire uh, uh, NORAD command and control architecture for that. Okay. Right. We had our uh, controllers, our air weapons controllers in North Bay, and then some were deployed forward, provide that, you know, the, uh, the air picture for our fighters and, you know, and for, for everyone that was uh, providing the the air exclusion zone, which was an 80 nautical mile radius around Kananaskis. And then of course, um, all the um, uh, all the mission preparation and execution, like whether it be the tankers, like I mean, the number of tankers we had supporting uh, the operation, plus the AWACS and how the AWACS were rotating in and out, out of Tinker uh, Air Force Base. Uh, that was all done through uh, NORAD and, and US Air Force. And then uh, the actual mission itself though, was devised, planned, developed and executed in Winnipeg. That was our mission to do. 
Gotcha. And that we were the supported in that case, like we were the guys that were responsible for that mission and NORAD was supporting us. But mm. I mean, uh, we would, uh, it, it would have been difficult to imagine how we could do something like that without NORAD. I mean, we, right. we really did uh, operate under the NORAD construct to ensure that that mission was successful. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Just in terms of having that tanker support, AWACS, um, Boy, oh boy, you know, to have four yeah. fighters up 24 seven. Yeah. You are constantly refueling. And yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then we had other aircraft, other fighters deployed in other locations too. Like we had fighters on alert up in Edmonton. Uh, the U S air force had fighters uh, on alert just South of the border. So mm-hmm. we had lots of assets, uh, you know, both airborne, but also standing by to respond in case something very dire took place. And I, I won't get into the details of something dire, but, uh, it, it, it would involve more than just one track of interest inbound uh, type thing. That right. we, we, there may have been some type of larger, more coordinated, uh, sinister, nefarious um, uh, activity going on. Right, right. Well, thank God uh, that did not transpire. Yeah. Um, so the other big aspect of your career was Afghanistan. Yeah. T- tell me a little bit about that, because you had a very significant role yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I'd be happy to, uh, Jody. And uh, uh, I try and hit some of the high points, if I may. Um, Please. So I'll go all the way back to, um, you know, back in 1994-95, I was a, a forward air controller in uh, in Bosnia, in Vasoko. And I was over there as what they call the officer commanding a tactical air control party, which is a small team of forward air controllers and then uh, specialists uh, like sergeants and master corporals that would help us deliver the, the close air support mission. And so I had that experience. And then uh, the reason why I mentioned that is because um, years later now, I was, um, I was a one-star general at uh, VND in, the, in the, the vice chief of defense staff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was actually over in Poland and I got a call and uh, the, you know, the person calling me, they said, where are you and when can you get home? I said, I'm in Poland and I can leave first thing in the morning if, if required. And they said, yes. And they said, there's been a... Um, a, uh, an incident in uh, Kandahar in, in Afghanistan. Okay. And it involved a friendly fire uh, uh, event. And, um, and there it's, um, uh, the situation is not good, but we'll brief you on it when you get home. So anyway, this was right in the middle of Atmedusa. And uh, it's when the Canadian battle group was uh, on Masamgar in the Argandab and they were you know, doing a significant operation against the Taliban. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they're, they're the uh, Al-Qaeda and Kekani and all those guys were involved, but it was mainly Taliban forces. But anyway, um, there was uh, the situation was uh, the Canadian uh, forward air controller was working with uh, American A-10 attack aircraft. And one of those A-10s uh, strafed the Canadian position. And uh, one soldier was killed there on the spot. And I think there were about maybe 30, 35 were wounded. And then the very next day, uh, or sorry, the day before that, uh, when they crossed the Argandab, they were pushed back by the Taliban. And, uh, you know, there were several um, vehicles burning on the battlefield and four other Canadians were killed. And uh, at the end of the operation, uh, there were a total of 50 Canadians wounded, some of them severely life-threatening injuries. Uh, and then there were five uh, deaths, uh, casual or fatal casualties. So anyway, uh, I was seconded to, uh, to uh, CENTCOM to join an investigation, an American investigation into uh, what happened. Uh, and so uh, within hours, I got back from Poland, uh, I got the, my kid already, and then I was on an airplane heading towards Bagram Air Force Base over in, the, 
in uh, Afghanistan, up in the northern part of Afghanistan. It's an American base. And I joined a team there, and there were uh, there were three Canadians on this investigation team, and uh, and about I think uh, probably eleven or twelve Americans, and it was a fully supported uh, team. It was just amazing how quickly the team came together. But we were over there for a month. Um, we interviewed the uh, the incident pilot flying the A ten aircraft, plus you know the squadron that was uh, the pilot belonged to, and then we went down to Kandahar and we interviewed all the um, the Canadian Battle Group uh, soldiers. Uh, that were involved uh, uh, in the uh, in the Panjway uh, during uh, uh, Operation Medusa, and then uh, we ended up going back to um, um, the U.S. Well, we went back to um, LUD in Qatar to do about three weeks worth of work looking at intelligence and things. Then we went back to the states to write our report, and so that was in 2006. And then in 2008, um, I was uh, selected to return to Afghanistan on a 12 month tour of duty. It actually turned out to be 13 months, but I was the, um, the two-star general commanding all the, uh, the, the air operations over there. So I had command of all the air bases, both Kandahar and, and, uh, and Kabul and then all the other bases as well. And then uh, I had all the, uh, the, the assets, whether it be fighter assets, the UAVs, the Predators, the Reapers, uh, all the tactical airlift in theater, all the helicopters, uh, the medevac. And, uh, and then shortly after I arrived there, uh, I guess about three weeks in, I was just getting, you know, acclimatized and getting used to my, uh, my role and responsibility. Mm -hmm. my, uh, my, I reported directly to a four-star general, an amazing gentleman, General David McKiernan. And he called me into his office along with my counterpart, uh, Major General Mike Tucker from the U.S. Army, and he said to me and Mike, he said, uh, so you two guys, he said that you guys are going to work together on everything. He said, Duff, he said, you're going to be Mike's uh, deputy chief of joint operations. Mike is the chief of joint operations. You're going to be the deputy. But he said, you guys are going to work together on everything, all land, all special forces. And he said, Duff, you're going to continue to do to be the air commander, but I'd, I'd like you to be involved in everything that Mike is doing as well. And I, like, for a guy like me, this is like music to my ears because this is the true definition of joint and combined operations, right. where you have that uh, amalgamation or the coming together, the, not the blending, but the coming together of uh, air, land, special forces, all in, in one uh, uh, you know, highly organized, focused, coordinated effort. And because Mike and I worked, we did work together on all that. It was a phenomenal experience for me to, first of all, whenever Mike would leave the headquarters, I would do all the decision briefs on special forces, on, uh, on what we called uh, dynamic targeting. Uh, Mike and I were both the strike approval authorities for special uh, operations. Uh, but we did have special forces under our command, like many nations and many missions on an ongoing basis. So that was um, an opportunity or an exposure and an opportunity that I would not have otherwise had if General McKiernan had not been, you know, that four-star commander that had that vision, you know, that desire to really bring uh, together a joint operation. So uh, that was the experience I had uh, while I was there. And, um, you know, uh, and then again, um, uh, probably a, a month after that, General McKiernan asked me, he said, well, didn't ask me, he said, he directed me or ordered me, he said, Duff, he said, I want you to stand up a dynamic targeting operation center. And we're going to start, we're going to start doing uh, all our own in theater dynamic targeting against threats and operatives on the battlefield, you know, whether it be uh, Taliban, Al Qaeda, Haqqani. And then we had this massive intelligence organization, 
Hey, here's here's intelligence again. Hey, eh? we right. talk about intelligence-enabled operations or intelligence-led operations. That's what we were doing at the time. And so once uh, it took us about a month to st- to uh, organize and put together the the, the operation center, the, the dynamic targeting operation center. And then Mike and I were the two co-commanders of the center, and we would you know take our shifts and take our turns sitting in the hot seat, as I used to call it, whenever we had operations going on. And this, this operations center used to oversee all special forces operations, all dynamic targeting, and then all counter-narcotics missions as well. And I worked very closely with the, the DEA from the U.S. They had special teams in, uh, in-country in Afghanistan that were going after all the opium production. And so we were doing all those missions as well. Uh, I would uh, take the decision brief and assign them assets uh, you know, to, to help them uh, execute the, or achieve their mission. And then we would we would uh, uh, you know execute it through the dynamic targeting ops center, and so uh, again an extraordinary uh, opportunity for, for for a guy like me, but also for for Mike Tucker as well. And uh, on um, on two special occasions after I'd taken a decision brief for an upcoming counter narcotics mission, and of course we would have the DTA uh, fast team. It's like a special forces team, but these uh, the the DTA team of about twelve to fifteen. Uh, operatives were like uh, SEAL Team 6 on steroids. Like these guys oh, wow. were unbelievable. They were the best of the best, creme de la, la creme. And so they would form the nucleus of the team. Then we would assign another special forces uh, unit. Uh, I won't get into the countries involved. But then we would, uh, I would start assigning uh, effects and enablers like, uh, you know, helicopter support, fighters, UAVs, uh, special uh, human intelligence, and so on and so forth. So we would build this mission and then they would go in and they would uh, go in and uh, neutralize or take out these uh, opium production laboratories. And there were, there were hundreds, if not thousands across the country. That's how the Taliban funded their military operations was through the sale of opium. And so once we could take out the opium production, we could cut off their funding and then, you know, we, could, we would have a better chance of, um, you know, affecting the Taliban operations. So uh, I, I just approved this one mission that looked really, you know, very interesting. And then um, the, the gentleman, the director of DEA in, in, in country, he says to me, he said, Duff, he said, listen, he said, uh, it was, I think, a Tuesday. And he said, the mission is this Thursday. He said, I'm going out on this mission as well. He said, would you like to come along? Uh-huh. And I said, I said, really? I said, are you kidding? He goes, no. He said, you know what the mission's all about. You just approved it. And I right. said, yeah. I said, uh, well, I said, I'll have to go and check it out with or check get get approval from General McKiernan. Sure. And I said, I'll, I'll brief him this afternoon and then I'll, I'll, I'll call you over at your office. So later on, I went down to General McKiernan's office and I told him about the mission, what it was all about. And he said, yeah, it looks like a good one. And I said, uh, so I said, sir, I said, I've been invited to, uh, to go along on the mission. <laughs> and uh, General McKiernan looks at me and he's going, he said, well, he said, this is highly unusual to have like a two-star general going in on a, such a, you know, I mean, there was quite a bit of risk involved and sure. maybe a little bit of danger, but he said, and then I, I told him, I said, well, we've mitigated all the risks. I said, I'm going to have some close protection with me and, uh, you know, I'm going along with the director and, uh, and that. And I said, we'll all be ninja up, ninja up and, you know, we'll have all our, our uh, we'll be sanitized and clean so uh, nobody will know who we are. Mm-hmm. So he said, he looks at me, he goes, he said, Duff, he said, uh, I, he said, I'll let you, I'll authorize you to go on this mission under one condition. Okay. And I said, what's that, sir? He said, I want to go on the next one. <laughs> and I said, really? And he goes, yeah. So I said, okay. I said, deal. 
Very so anyway, cool. I called up uh, the director and I said, I'm in. And so we set up my participation. I said, but there's a, there's a condition attached. And I told him, and uh, of course the director said, yeah, absolutely. He said, we've got another one coming up in about a week or two. And he said, I'll, I'll prepare to have the, the uh, general McKiernan go in on that. And he did. And of course, you know, we used to watch each other going on these missions from our operations center because we, you know, we have all the UAVs, the Predators, Reapers, Global Hawks, and we could see everything going on on the ground. And we could also call in support. If, if, if the team got into trouble, we could, we could bring in extra support. Sure. And so uh, anyway, uh, I, that was probably one of the most memorable. I did that twice, by the way. I went on two missions. But that was perhaps the, the most, some of the most memorable experiences I had during my 13 months in Afghanistan where, you know, a simple airman like myself, you know, with my, you know, F-18 background, and I'd been in Bosnia twice, uh, once on the ground and once flying F-18s uh, over top and so on. But to actually do that mission on the ground in Afghanistan in 2008, 2009, when it was a very active, uh, you know, combat zone, and then, you know, being part of, um, you know, authorizing and, and resourcing and, uh, and supporting and being responsible for the approval of all these special forces missions, all these counter narcotics missions, all the, uh, you know, the dynamic targeting missions that we did. And then of course we had all the fighters, like 110, 120 fighters that we always had going airborne, providing close air support and, and what we called armed overwatch to all our ground forces. So we had probably about uh, 200,000 ground forces there in Afghanistan at the time, plus all the PRTs, provincial reconstruction teams. So, you know, being able to be part of that is something that doesn't often come along for most people. And especially uh, I will say uh, for Canada, you know, for Canada to have the opportunity to have one of their folks like myself involved in that was, uh, I think, an extraordinary uh, opportunity. And uh, I was I was very proud. I mean, um, you know, to when I used to go into decision briefs or whatever groupings I would walk into, you couldn't find anybody more proud than me walking into a room with my maple leaves on my shoulder and and people coming up and shaking our hand. Um, I will say, you know, maybe to kind of end this off, uh, uh, you know, as, as much as I've, you know, talked so positively about my experience, uh, there were uh, probably more, more, more uh, unhappy experiences than I, than I care to remember. But the, the number of, um, of losses that we had while I was over there, the number of ramp ceremonies we had to repatriate uh, Canadians back home, um, you know, the number of um, uh, trips up the Highway of Heroes, um, all, the, uh, all the services that we had, because every time we, each, each time we lost a Canadian, we would have our own ceremony in theater, uh, both in, in Kabul and down in Kandahar. And, uh, you know, here we are now just, um, what, um, you know, two weeks away from Remembrance Day. And as much as I think about all the, um, the, uh, the colleagues, the, uh, the, the service uh, people that we lost, the Canadians and all the other 42 nations eh, were over in Afghanistan and all the losses. Um, every time we had a loss, I would think about that fine person that was over there. You know, they dedicated themselves. They were being supported, you know, by their families back home. But I would always think about their families, their kids, their parents, their, their partners, everything, everybody that was left behind that 
were having a, a, a tough time understanding that they just lost their loved one over in a far off country. And uh, I, I think where I had the greatest amount of difficulty in all of this was watching at the very end when NATO and all our countries were pulling out and leaving the, the Afghans uh, behind as the Taliban came rolling in. And uh, it took me weeks to process, or if not months, I mean, I, I think I'm still thinking about it, uh, to process what, 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 what was taking place and what the true implications were going to be. And uh, it is horrific to think about, you know, what, what they're going through right now over there. And we had accomplished so much, uh, a lot of people, I mean, I wrote it in my memoirs, which were published in, in a book, but uh, I wrote in my, in my memoirs, um, you know, all the tough times, but what we had actually accomplished, all the schools we opened up, all the roads we built, all the institutions, uh, like the government institutions that were operating when we were there. Uh, you know, while I was there, we were building uh, Kabul uh, International Airport with a Rule 3 hospital and, and all kinds of wonderful facilities. We were training air traffic controllers, Afghan air traffic controllers. We're doing like, I mean, the list is too long to go through right now, but to watch, uh, uh, you know, as everything was unraveling and falling apart, um, as uh, our, uh, our, our NATO forces were rapidly withdrawing. I mean, it wasn't even, you know, uh, uh, planned and executed, uh, you know, uh, properly. It was as if, you know, uh, who could get out of theater quickest and first. And uh, I still have trouble with that. But I am thankful for, for two uh, gentlemen and their families that got out. There is um, my, uh, my uh, cultural advisor. He's safe in Vancouver right now. And then another gentleman who was managing our facilities, our Canadian facilities over there, uh, a lovely Afghan gentleman. He's in Vancouver as well. And so, uh, you know, as, um, as, as tough as it is, uh, I'm, at the end of the day, I'm thankful that, that those two gentlemen got out. They're safe here in Canada. And uh, that, but they have many more members of their family that we're still trying to get out to this day. And uh, I just, um, you know, um, uh, maintain hope that uh, the IRCC and, and Canadian authorities will continue to, uh, to get to, to do what's right and to bring those families uh, to safety, you know, here in Canada and, and in the U.S. But yeah, so I see we're, we're almost out of time here, but uh, I just thought I'd quickly, there, there are so many other, uh, you know, memorable uh, events uh, in Afghanistan, uh, you know, both, uh, you know, I like to think more on the positive side, but there are a lot of tough events as well. But um, all in all, uh, again, an extraordinary experience. Um, I came out of Afghanistan and uh, a week later, I, uh, I handed in my letter of retirement to uh, General Walton Tinchuk, who, um, who had a tough time accepting my, uh, my retirement letter, but uh, he wanted me to stay a little bit longer. Uh, but um, I wanted to, uh, to spend more time with my family. I had a young, oh, uh, I mean, that was, what's that, 13, 13 years ago. I had a very young family at the time and I just wanted to spend more time, uh, you know, at home with my, 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 my wife and my three kids. And then, you know, think about what, what I was gonna do next because, you know, here I am 13 years later, I'm still working full time. Uh, loving the, my current job. And uh, I think back all the time, daily, about uh, those experiences that I've shared with you, Jody. And, uh, and uh, these are the things that, 
Sometimes they bring me comfort uh, in the middle of the night. And, uh, you know, sometimes they keep me up. But um, it's what we have to live with. And uh, I'm happy to say that, um, that my life is, uh, is going well. I'm very thankful for many, many things. And, uh, and uh, I, I often think about, especially this time of year, Remembrance Day is the toughest. Because I, I think of who we've lost, but I think of everyone that's here with us who have been, you know, uh, who, who have to still struggle, you know, mourn and grieve. And, you know, you, you never stop mourning and grieving. And, uh, and I think uh, we, we do that together now as uh, we approach Remembrance Day. And, but I, I must say that, I, 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 that it's on my mind all, all year round, not just Remembrance Day. Well, you know, I, I intentionally have stayed quiet as I listen to your recollection stuff, because they're so important to hear. Um, I thank you for everything that you've done in service to the country. And of course, to everyone who serves, you know, no one's forcing anybody to put on a uniform. And so we absolutely must honor everybody who does, and particularly those that didn't come back. And of course, the families, like you say, you know, the mourning continues, and we, we must remember that. Um, and on top of that, I echo your sentiments. The people that helped us in Afghanistan, we need to get them out, and we need yep. to help. We need to help them in every way that we can, and their families. Um, you know, everything that you shared just speaks to me about collaborations and like this was under the construct of NATO, you know, here you are a Canadian two-star general working with your American colleagues and other colleagues from, from NATO countries. Although nobody wants combat, nobody wants to be in a, in a war zone, but from a professional development perspective, boy, oh boy, like, I mean, such an interesting part of your career. Um, you talked about some of the enablers that you had available to you. And I can't help but just ask you, because I, I am curious, um, if you were to pick one enabler, you know, from your Air Force perspective, if you were to pick an enabler that perhaps you weren't familiar with or you didn't have access to in the Royal Canadian Air Force, what would you say helped the most for you guys to do what you needed to do? You know, that's, uh, that's an excellent uh, question, Jody. And, um, you know, um, I, I think of three things, actually. If somebody said, you know, Duff, uh, you have to get ready. You're going back in. You know, uh, we have to send you back. And and I would. I mean, I, I don't think they would because of my age right now. I'm uh, I'm 66 years old now, so uh, I, I don't think they will send uh, somebody of my age back into a, a, a theater of operation or, or, or a war zone. They'd be but, lucky. You know, if I, you, I would go. I would there. go. You know, I I, go, I feel like you know healthy and strong enough. And but um, yeah, no. If I was going back in, there are three things that you know that I take from all my experiences. And it is, for me, it's, it's not about what I want to do. It's what other people are expecting of us, right? Right. And so a large part of um, our, our Afghanistan mission, if not all of it, was we were providing support to all the folks on the ground. Right. You have to understand that, you know, there was no air threat per se, like, you know, the, the Taliban and Haqqani and uh, uh, Al-Qaeda, they don't have fighters and stuff like that. Although, we were always aware of that there could be threats coming from the ground up into the air to, to target our aircraft. Mm -hmm. But what I needed, uh, I mean, there's a whole a spectrum of uh, capabilities that I had at my disposal. But the three things that I nurtured and cared for the most was number one, 
was the medevac. That when our soldiers and our, our, our well, soldiers and civilians, and, you know, even Afghan civilians mm-hmm. and everybody at, uh, and our military civilians that were working over there, that if they are hurt, wounded, that we needed to make sure that we could be there within minutes and have them back to, you know, a roll three hospital. We used to call it the golden hour. Right. That from when they were injured, you know, we used to give ourselves maximum 30 minutes to fly out, 30 minutes to fly back in to get them to a trauma center where they could be looked after. If we could do that in less than an hour, then we could save their lives. If it went beyond that, then the the uh, the likelihood, uh, uh, you know, was not in our favor. Mm-hmm. And so that was probably number one. And I know that was General McKiernan's, one of his main focuses. The other part, too, is that um, I, we used to call it armed overwatch. Mm-hmm. An armed overwatch means we always have assets in the air, 24-7, 365, where we could respond to anybody on the ground, no matter where they were in Afghanistan, within 12 minutes. And if you think about that, you know, the Afghan, you know, if you think about the size of the country, and if something was to happen anywhere in that country, how could we get air assets over top of them to support them in less than 12 minutes? And so that was the other big thing that we were constantly working on and massaging and shaping and, and you know, putting more aircraft up. And, you know, uh, sometimes we were using uh, unmanned aerial vehicles that were armed, you know, with uh, Hellfires and, and uh, you know, Mark 82s or 500-pound bombs and things like that. Uh, sometimes we were using uh, fighter aircraft. Sometimes we were using B-1 bombers, you know, that carried a, a very significant payload. Sure. But we were always uh, massaging and shaping and tailoring what we needed airborne to cover the entire theater of operation. So we were always there supporting the folks on the ground, whether they were going into operations with our air support or whether they were in operations and we had to rush in and bring them out to uh, take them back you know, within that golden hour, as we used to call it. And then finally, as I learned uh, about, uh, I guess it would have been about two months into my mission when we stood up our dynamic targeting operations center, that this was a highly effective, highly surgical, like very precise capability that, uh, I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, how we would have um, uh, succeeded with our mission if we wouldn't have had that capability as well. That, uh, you know, sometimes we had intelligence about something really, uh, about something foreboding, something was going to happen. And then we started to see things, you know, materialize on the battlefield. And then we had the intelligence to, to identify the threat and then to take action. But the, the direct action that we needed to take, you needed to have that dynamic targeting operations center and the capability. And with that comes what we call joint fires. Like you can call upon many things. And in some cases, Jody, we weren't actually targeting to like completely eliminate it. Sometimes it was just to stop them. Sure. And sure. you know we right. would wanna either stop them in their tracks and then push them back and then, uh, then allow the force, our friendly forces, to withdraw. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes we had to do that because to engage enemy forces or an en- enemy location could possibly incur civilian casualties, which we avoided at all costs. We right. did not want to take one civilian casualty, so we had to be very careful. And dynamic targeting allowed us that precision, that surgical precision, to be able to eliminate an operative from the battlefield while you know, not not eliminating, but significantly reducing the risk of incurring civilian casualties. So those are the three things that, I mean, again, there's many, many other things that I had at my disposal, but the medevac search and rescue uh, golden hour, 
the armed overwatch, which covered a whole bunch of assets, and then the precise surgical capability of uh, targeting and uh, eliminating uh, like one, one thing from the battlefield. Well, thank you, uh, Duff. I, I, I greatly appreciate your insight and, and you sharing that with me because I think it is interesting to know because from all of this, I hope we learn. We continue to learn. And uh, every, every campaign, every, every conflict is different, but, but we have to learn from, from our experiences. And I'd like to close by just saying, I too am troubled with the way things ended in Afghanistan, but... Yeah. The hope that I come away with is after all of those years of being there, that collectively we have planted the seed of hope in a lot of the people that have grown up with having NATO and friendly forces there. And hopefully that'll have an effect long term. Well, Jody, your, your final words are so appropriate. And, um, you know, as, as troubled as I was watching what happened at the end of Afghanistan, I just think about what I know about the Afghan people. They are a very proud and capable people. And I have hope that the current young generation will be able to see the path that they're going to follow and then the generation after them. And so I think there is uh, a, a, you know, a, a good future. Uh, it's going to be very uh, hard. It's going to be uh, heartbreaking in, in many cases. But I think that the Afghan people, are, are um, their, their future is in their hands, and we need to be able to support them as they now try to shape their own country and take on the, the Taliban uh, governance, uh, if I may use that word, that, that's currently in place. But um, yeah, thank you very much, Jody. And of course, we're going to be thinking a lot about this uh, as we approach uh, Remembrance Day. And again, we'll be reflecting on um, uh, the losses and then all the families and and everything else that uh, that we ponder uh, during this time of year. Absolutely. Uh, Major General Charles Sullivan, retired Royal Canadian Air Force officer, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you and, and hearing your experiences. And again, I want to thank you for everything that you've done for, for the country and uh, and for every every place that you've served. You, you've touched people and you've touched me in, in sharing your, your thoughts. So I, I thank you very, very much. Well, thank you, Jody. And I very much appreciate uh, the opportunity to share some of my thoughts with you. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. That, my friends, was Major General Charles Duff Sullivan, a retired Royal Canadian Air Force General Officer. If you have any questions for us, please write to us at gobolddepodcast at gmail.com. And we look forward to having General Sullivan back again in the near future. Thank you again, sir. It was a great Thank pleasure. You. Thank, Thank you, Jody. Take care. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.